Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue our current series in Romans with Dr. Newfeld called The Power of the Gospel. Our study will focus on Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, as we learn what dying to live means for the Christian. Years ago, I remember reading an account of how one funeral was done in Forest Lawn Cemetery in Southern California. A very rich man had died, and instead of being buried in a coffin, he was placed behind the steering wheel of his favorite limousine. He had his very best suit on, a pair of very expensive sunglasses on his face, and a large cigar placed appropriately in his mouth. As a crane was lowering the car with the dead passenger into the ground, one person attending the funeral was heard to remark, Now that's living. Of course, it's not living at all. That's actually worse than putting lipstick on a pig. This is a very expensive but fake life stick put onto what is merely trying to hide the hideous finality of death. Death is final. No one tries it out on a test drive. It comes with finality, and no limousine can hide that truth. Now, using death is both an analogy and a reality. Paul will say that every single believer suffers death, and this death is the secret of why we're alive. Now, I'm going to return back to that theme. But before we do, let me take you back to Romans 5, verse 20. We ended our last study in Romans by hearing Paul say, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So I've entitled our study in Romans 5 to 8, The Power of the Gospel. I've been trying to make the point that these four chapters in Romans show how the gospel not only has the power to save us from our sins and promise us eternal life, but the gospel also has the power to change our lives, make us holy, and cause us to live for the glory of Christ. But before Paul describes how this can be in chapter 5, he has marshaled a great deal of evidence to prove to us that the gospel has sealed us unto Jesus. The long war between us and God is over. We have peace with God. We're reconciled to God, and more so, this reconciliation with God is not dependent upon our behavior, but upon God's promises in the gospel. Furthermore, even as we were born into Adam and into his sin, our justification puts us in Christ and into his righteousness in life. We are secure in Christ and we have hope. But there's still more. The enormity of the sin problem and of our own personal sin problem cannot hinder our reconciliation with God through the death of Jesus on our behalf. Indeed, where sin increased, grace abounded. You see, sin can only increase, but grace abounds. It overflows. The supply of God's grace is infinitely higher and greater and richer and more massive than any number of our sins. Now, whenever we talk this way, I can almost hear the objections. If you go on talking this way and piling on the examples the way Paul does in Romans 5, it can only lead to bad consequences. People will think they can live the way they want to, sin with abandon, and still be in Christ. Surely that can't be true, can it? And it is to this matter that Paul now turns his attention, and this covers all of chapter 6. So let's start reading. I'm reading Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And it is at this point that some of you are saying, well, finally, we've got to put limits on this grace or we will all become lawless. You know, throughout church history, there have been those who have fallen into one of two errors regarding sin. On the one side are those who have urged Christians to avoid sin. 
So what could be wrong with that? Well, nothing and yet everything. See, these people have made rules, rules upon rules about how sin is to be avoided. Women had to wear certain clothing so as to avoid breaking the sixth commandment. Sundays had to be lived in certain ways so as to avoid breaking the fourth commandment. Everyone had to learn to live simply so as to avoid breaking the tenth commandment, and on and on it went. Christianity was reduced to rules. We're saved by grace, they said, but after salvation, we've got to live by the rules, by the law, by human effort. After all, sin equals death, and this is how to avoid death. Keep the rules. And that leads to works righteousness, and that is the enemy of the gospel. On the other side are those who drink deeply from Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded. Now, what could be wrong with that? Well, nothing and everything. No matter how you sin, these people will say, grace is always greater, so don't worry about sin. It was A.H. Auden in his book, For the Time Being, put it this way. He said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Well, we may laugh at that, but I recently heard of an evangelical church that was split over this issue. A number of people had taken up pornography and swearing and and other things to highlight that they were not under law but under grace. See, what a perversion this is of the gospel of grace. So in order to get this matter right, let's find out why grace, when it is really grace, always leads to holiness. Let's read Romans 6, verses 1 to 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? The sentence, by no means, is the strongest possible way of saying no in Greek. It's like saying, fat chance, or never going to happen, or not on your life. It's the strongest possible expression of no that Paul can think of. We can never, not ever, continue in sin. Why is that? Because Christ has come to set us free from our vices, not to feed them. He has come not only to forgive your sins, but to finally and ultimately break the bondage of sin in your life. And here is our death theme. When Jesus died for our sins, we died right along with him. No subtle masking over death. No lipstick on a pig or a dead guy in a limousine. Our former way of life has become a stinking, rotting corpse. Let me give you an illustration that I think might help. When missionaries move to a new country, their first task is to enter as deeply as they can into their new culture. I've spoken to more than one missionary who's told me that there comes a time in learning a new language and culture in which one so deeply enters into the new culture that the missionary sometimes feels like he or she is losing his or her identity. And that's exactly what living in grace does. We have moved from one country to another. Once we lived in Adam land, dominated by sin and death. Then we move to the land of Christ, dominated by justification, righteousness, and life. All things are now new. See, but my analogy falls short. Most missionaries will come home when they retire, and they have regular furloughs along the way. But imagine this. When Hudson Taylor left for China in 1800, it took him about a full year to get there. Imagine going to a country in which it's impossible to ever come back. And that's the idea. We have abandoned Adam and have come to Christ. 
We die to our old life, and it's not possible to take death for a test drive and hand the car back. Death is permanent, and death destroys, and in this sense, the death of Christ and your death with him has destroyed your former affections, your former lifestyle, your former loves and hates, your former pattern of living, and you belong to a new country, and that, my dear friends, is why grace leads to holiness. Now, as we will see, that doesn't mean that we don't still wrestle with sin. We will see that when we get to Romans 6.12. But if you can stand another analogy, sin and its power in your life after your conversion has been seriously downgraded. Now, I deliberately use the word downgraded here because this is the word that gets used of hurricanes. Once a hurricane has hit Florida or the states that border on the Gulf of Mexico, and after it moves inland, when it gets as far as, let's say, Tennessee or North Carolina, it gets downgraded from a hurricane to a tropical storm and then finally to just a storm. And when you came to Christ, sin was downgraded. See, what do I mean? Well, back in Romans 5.14, Paul said, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death and sin reign. Before you were in Christ, your problem was not that you sinned on occasion. Your problem was that you were in sin. Sin was your homeland, but there's more. When we get to chapter 7, we'll see that sin is defined as a law. Just like any country with laws, the law has the ability to coerce you. Let me explain. Let's say you're living in Canada and decide that taxes are an imposition and you aren't paying them anymore. Here's a little secret that you might remember. Canada has ways of dealing with you. They can force you to comply. And that's what sin does. It's a law, and it can force compliance. But listen to what the Scripture says. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when you're in Christ, sin can no longer force you to comply. Its power has been broken. The storm of unrighteousness and rebellion and lawlessness has been downgraded. You will struggle with it, but the great power is broken. And that makes all the difference in the world. And when we come back, we'll see how to practically apply that. After Paul has taught us much about the abundance of grace we have through Christ and what he did for us, we now see the importance of how it actually leads to holiness. Grace is never to be taken for granted. Rather, for the true believer who has died to sin and been made alive in Christ, it empowers us to be more holy. Well, we'll learn more about how we've been set free from the power of sin and death when we come back. Well, each year we design some unique ministry vacations just for you, and we're thrilled about our upcoming cruise happening this July. Hosted by Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again, we'll be traveling for the first time to Alaska on our first Alaska Adventure Cruise. Featuring Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, as well as Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and award-winning musician Amanda Stott, we guarantee this will be a wonderful time of fun, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment. Of course, there's also the great food and basking in the beauty of God's creation. It's filling up fast, so don't wait to secure your spot. Plus, by registering early, you're taking advantage of the best rates available. Please visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425 for more information. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. When we left off, we said that upon conversion, 
sin no longer is a power that can demand your obedience. But my brother or sister in Christ, you might ask, then why do I struggle with sin the way that I am, and why do I keep falling into the same sin? It seems to me that sin is just as powerful as before. The answer is that sin is still a force tempting you, but it no longer has authority over you. I know that some of us have problems with that because that doesn't seem to square with our experience, but look at it this way. Imagine you're a slave and your master is cruel and demands you do terrible things. One day you receive a proclamation of emancipation. You're free. Now your old master shows up and demands your obedience, and his voice is as authoritative as before, and you've learned a habit of cowering before him. Before you can break that habit, you need to learn of and deeply internalize your emancipation. For until you internalize that, you'll never be able to live in the freedom that you have. Now let's go forward. I'm reading now from verses 3 to 4. Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. Now, here's a glorious truth. There is a reason why God, in his infinite wisdom, instituted baptism as the initiatory ordinance into the faith. God has wanted to paint a picture. Theologians call this an ontological truth. I mean, basically, that means it's a great grand truth. Now, while it is necessary that we experience the truth and deeply and personally encounter this truth into our subjective, everyday experiential reality, yet notwithstanding, this thing is true. It's true regardless of what you feel. Conversion is death to sin. And if it's not that, it's nothing. 1 John 3, 9 says this using a very different image, but the point is the same. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And here's the point. Either something new was planted in you, or something old was killed in you, or really it was both, but you are dead to sin. And furthermore, your baptism is your identity card. Have you ever gone to the bank to withdraw money, and they've asked you for an official identity card? So you pull out your driver's license to identify yourself, or, or when you get onto an airplane or cross a border, you show your passport. Well, baptism is like that. It states your identity. You're not in Adam, you're in Christ. Notice the phrase, all of us. All of us who are baptized are also all of us who have died. Now, before I go further, I have to address something that is not in this text, but it relates to an issue that modern Christians face. It has become common for many contemporary Christians, even though they are urged to be baptized, for some reason never get around to it. And because of this, years pass between their conversion and their baptism, making a verse like this seem meaningless. Now, in order to urge baptism, some have interpreted this verse to say that baptism is necessary unto salvation. Now, to this, I respond in two ways. First, if we insist on baptism as necessary unto salvation, we're contradicting Paul's clear teaching in the first four chapters of Romans. There he makes the point that no human action can result in salvation, but rather that salvation is all of God through the sacrificial death of Christ. 
even though there are groups that teach what has been called baptismal regeneration and have even used Bible texts like 1 Peter 3.21, I fear they misuse these texts and do not give the plain meaning. In short, it will do no good to safeguard a healthy theology of baptism by appealing to a theology of baptism that's not found in the Bible. Now, having said that, it seems to me that the Apostle Paul simply takes for granted that all believers have been baptized. And in the early church, there was no such thing as an unbaptized believer. And if you were to tell the Apostle Paul, and for that matter, any one of the apostles, that 2,000 years later, there would be all sorts of believers who had not been baptized, he'd have done a double take and said, what? And after that, he would have asked two things. The first was, why not? And the second, well, what are you guys teaching? Now, your baptism is your identity card. Now, in the New Testament world, baptism was probably always by immersion, and therefore, it fit very nicely with the symbolism of burial and resurrection. It was an initiatory public statement that you were buried with Christ and you've been raised with Christ, or to put it another way, it was a public statement that you have been united with Christ. So imagine you die in a hospital bed. Eventually, the medical officer will come and sign your death certificate. That signifies I'm dead. Now again, to be clear, your death certificate did not kill you. Rather, it signifies that you're dead. And so when the grace of God came to you in Jesus, it came to you as a sacred call where you were put to death in Christ and raised in his resurrection. Now, let's go to verses 5 to 7. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, when my Bible says the old self, the literal Greek reading says the old man, stating it in the masculine. The translators use the term self to indicate that this was true of male and females equally, and that, of course, is the case. But in this translation, I fear we have missed something. The phrase, the old man, is a way of describing our lives represented by Adam, who is the old man. When he was our representative head, we were dominated by sin and death. But in conversion, we are no longer united with Adam. Rather, we are united with Christ. Now, let's see here if we can quickly repeat Paul's thoughts. Conversion, so Paul tells us, means death. We die with Christ, and this means three things. First, our old sin nature has been killed. Our old self really was crucified. Something fundamental to who you are has died in your conversion. And as we have said, this can't be just a test drive. This is an act of finality. We're going to say a lot more about this in the future. Second, the power of sin to control you has also been broken. Verse 6 says that the body of sin has been brought to nothing. The body of sin refers to the rule of sin. Sin's authority over you has been broken. And as Paul will explain, the natural result of this is that we progress in sanctification and holiness. Sin's authority has been broken. Therefore, sin can no longer force me to do anything. Let's reread verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. I want you to imagine what it must have felt like for the African slaves at the end of the U.S. Civil War. 
A new law now replaced a previous law. It was now illegal for one man to own another. Prior to that, the South had passed a law mandating that anyone who came upon a fleeing slave, that they were bound by law to do all in their power to capture that slave. All laws until the proclamation of the emancipation of slaves determined that you would never be released. But now, this form of behavior was prohibited by law. And yet, as we know from history, that did not mean that blacks in the United States would instantly become the president. A great struggle remained, but that struggle was now fought on a completely different groundwork. The law had changed, and for the first time, it was possible to win the war. My dear brother and sister in Christ, can you grasp this magnificent truth? Will you embrace that you, in fact, have died with Christ? Will you truly begin to pray, Dear Lord, help me to understand what has happened to me. Help me to see that the law has changed regarding me, and I am dead to sin and alive to Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for what has been accomplished in Christ. And, O Heavenly Father, open our eyes as well. O Lord, may we see this beautiful truth, and may we learn to act within it. May we engage in your truth, O Heavenly Father. And, O Lord, to you be the glory as you see us acting as you have made us. Amen. You may have heard that phrase in Christian circles, dying to live, yet perhaps many of us have never completely understood what that really means until now. What a powerful and encouraging message we've heard today, a reminder that sin no longer rules over us. We may still struggle with sin and face temptation, but through Christ and His gospel, we are a new creation, dead to our old way of life. I hope this study has made all of us listening grasp one of the most magnificent truths of Scripture even more. For some, maybe even for the first time, let's continue to seek God in those areas where we may be struggling and rely on His power to overcome sin. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld continues to unpack Romans chapter 6, revealing what it means for us to be raised with Christ. Don't miss it in this series called The Power of the Gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As we embark on another year of doing God's work, we reflect on how far He's brought us in 2015. You might recall that one of our major themes last year was, I will tell. And we took this message across Canada during our very first national tour. Well, along with that, we invited many people to become monthly partners for the first time with our Partner to Tell campaign. And thanks to so many of you, we exceeded our goal to acquire 100 new monthly partners. In fact, in 2015, we added 140 new partners from right across Canada to this wonderful group of people. These partners are so critical to ensuring that the daily broadcast with Dr. Neufeld's teaching continues every day across the country. So as we continue to expand our opportunity to teach the Word, we have a new goal for 2016. This year, our goal is to welcome another 120 monthly partners through our Partner to Tell campaign, which will help us exceed the 500 mark. We know this is possible with your support, so today would you consider joining this faithful group of ministry friends? 
Would you stand with us and partner to tell more people than ever the life-changing truth of God's Word? For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.